You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. Welcome to Calvary. Hey, we are so glad that you're here. I mean, I, I can't even tell you how long it's been. Oh, I can tell you how long it's been. It's been five months, if you can believe that, that uh, it's, been, it's been five months since we've, um, since, since we, we've been here, and, and I appreciate everybody that is watching online, and uh, I want to encourage you when you're ready, come on back, and uh, I am, how many of you haven't been to, we started, so about six weeks ago, we started doing Wednesday nights. Uh, to kind of get ready for, so I don't know if you came out to a Wednesday night, okay, well, but I don't even know what percentage that is, all right, maybe half, but all right, well, hey, we're, we're glad that you're here, and uh, so when I was in the sixth grade, several of my, I, was, I grew up in Boston, uh, for those of you that don't know, but when I uh, grew up in Boston, uh, I had a bunch of friends that bought hunting knives, because you know, as you know, we had a lot of hunting in downtown Boston, um, and so, but they all got on this kick that they bought these hunting knives, they'd carry these knives around, because that's what you need is sixth graders with knives. And so I remember my mom uh, asking me one day, she's like, I'm going to the store, do you need anything? And I said, yeah, can you buy me a hunting knife? She's like, which, with my mom, who always said no to anything before even that, she's like, okay, I'll see if I find one. And uh, so now my f- friends had bought one, and it looked like something out of the first Rambo movie, if you ever saw that. If not, then... You guys have some homework. Uh, but anyway, she brought home that she's like, hey, I, they, this is the best I could do as far as getting you a knife. And they looked like toenail clippers. And they, I mean, the, and in fact, I think they had a nail file on them. And so anyway, uh, it, but it kind of, it looked, had something that looked like a knife or maybe it was scissors, who knows. And, um, but I was happy. Well, one day, this is, so I started walking around with this little nail file, toenail clipper, what I thought was a hunting knife in my pocket. And uh, I got into an argument in school with this kid uh, named Joe Brewer. I'll never forget his name. So Joe Brewer and I got into an argument, at, and at recess we decided to settle things because that's how things got settled back then. And we were going to duke it out. Well, he pushed me, and I shoved him, and, and then um, I realized this was going to end in a knife. And I said, listen, you should know I have a knife. And so I pulled out my knife. And, and I said, you don't want me to cut you. And, and he's, he looks at it and he goes, he starts laughing. Like we're in this heated argument, gonna fight. And he starts laughing. He's like, that's not a knife. And I'm like, yeah, it is. Look, it even has like a double blade. And he's like, that's not a knife. That's a bottle opener. And, uh, and so he just starts laughing so hard. He's like, listen, man, we're not gonna fight today. So we shook hands and that, that's how like the thing ended. And he's like, we caught up with all of our friends. And he's like, hey, uh, Bob tried to stab me with a bottle opener. This guy's hilarious. Anyway, and that's, I was done with knives after that day. And, uh, and I, I wish all of my problems could be solved that easily. But now, I, I talk about that because you, got, if, you know, the right weaponry makes all the difference, especially if we find ourselves in a battle that's spiritual in nature. Now, we're closing out a series that we started about six weeks ago or so in uh, the armor of God based on that famous section in the book of Ephesians. And if you haven't been with us, or you haven't watched online, or let me just catch you up real quick, is that the Apostle Paul, the writer of Ephesians, this book in the New Testament, um, he has been arrested in Jerusalem. 
He wasn't getting any justice because he was a Roman citizen. Any Roman citizen living in that time could just appeal to Caesar and he could have his case heard by uh, the emperor of Rome. And so, and they would say, if you've appealed to Caesar, then to Caesar you will go. So, and he gets in, there's all these kind of like mock trials. And so he just appeals to Caesar. He has that right. So they put him on a boat to Rome. And you can read all about this in the book of Acts chapters 21 to 28, tell the whole story from his arrest up until he gets, uh, he lands uh, in Rome and then is waiting for his day in court. Now, you can imagine if anybody who appeals to Caesar can meet with the emperor, he had a bit of a waiting list. So there was a two-year wait, and that's what we read at the end of the book of Acts, is that there's a two-year wait waiting for him to have his day in court. So they put him in, uh, essentially, it's like house arrest, and he's living in this house. He can receive guests, and he has a Roman guard who is uh, essentially chained to him for these two years uh, waiting. And during that time, he writes four letters that are found in the New Testament. He writes the book of Ephesians, a book, the book of Colossians, the book of Philemon, and the book of Philippians. And so him being chained to this Roman guard serves as the inspiration for the armor of God and how he details it for us and how it relates to us as Christians. And so if you weren't with us the first week, we talked about uh, what's called the belt of truth, that the belt of truth isn't really a piece of armor that a belt is something that holds everything else together, and that's what truth does. It holds us together even when our world is falling apart because truth is the basis of everything that we do. We put on truth, we walk in truth. The second piece of armor was the breastplate of righteousness, and that uh, breastplate was what protects your heart, which is, represents your will, your decisions. The, the breastplate represents the gut, which the, ancients, uh, the ancient world, they believed that the, the gut was the seat of the emotions. That's why we talk about having, um, you know, butterflies in our, in our stomach and things like that. Uh, because sometimes if we're not careful, our emotions will work against us. The third piece of armor was having your, your feet fitted with the preparation of the gospel. And in those days, soldiers wore shoes that had cleats at the bottom. And you could stand firm uh, while taking ground at the same time. And uh, then there's a shift that happens, if you remember, if you've been with us, and that is, if you're reading carefully, the first three pieces of armor, Paul says that we need to have. And then the last three, he says that we need to take up. And that is, the first three are not ones that we put on and take off. They're things that we need to have on us at all times. Instead, the last three are the ones that we take up as needed. It's like a baseball player. He keeps the uniform on at all times, but he grabs a bat or a glove based on what he needs on the situation. And so the last three pieces we take up as needed. The first is, uh, this is the fourth piece of armor, is the shield of faith. The kind of faith that moves mountains is a kind of faith that presupposes that you're in a battle and need faith. The fifth piece we looked at last time which was the helmet of salvation. And, the, and, and we talked about that your view of salvation changes everything. It changes your past because Jesus forgives your past. It changes your, uh, your, your present because God is working out in your life what he has placed in it. And it changes your future because there's an eternity with God that's waiting for us. And that brings us to the final piece of armor that we're going to look at. In fact, we've been doing this each week as we've been taking a running start from verse 10, this whole section. So we're going to read uh, from verse 10, and here's what we read in, in Ephesians 6. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, Paul tells us to take up the sword of the spirit. This is the last thing, which is the word of God. Now, when he says to take up the sword of the spirit, I don't want you to think the imagery as like this long kind of broad sword, this medieval type of thing. Um, this is much more along the lines of a dagger. Now, Roman soldiers carried a weapon that was called a macaria, and this was a dagger that was anywhere from six to 18 inches that was used in close hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so when Jesus, it, it, when it's in the garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, the apostle Peter, like the guys show up, right? Judas betrays him. They show up to, to uh, J Judas is going to point him out so that he can get arrested. The apostle Peter pulls out a sword and takes a swing and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Uh, his name was Malchus. Jesus heals him. And Peter is told to put his sword away. That's the same word. Right? Peter had just woken up from a nap. If you remember, they were sleeping. And so he's a bit groggy. And I'm guessing he took a swipe for the guy's head. Um, but he missed because he was half asleep. But that's the same weapon. It's this same type of weapon, this, this dagger. And Paul says that we need to have one of those types of weapons in our lives as well. He says it's the word of God. And what does that mean? I mean, does that just mean we carry around the Bible with us wherever we go? And so... But we're going to see three ways in which the word of God serves to us like a sword and inflicts damage on the kingdom of darkness as we continue to move forward. So if you're a note taker, let's start from the beginning. And so if you, right, uh, number one, the sword of the spirit is the right word at the right time. The right word at the right time. The Greek word uh, for word I know if you've been around the Bible for a while, you know that sometimes the word is logos, and that's not the word that's used. That's a word that uh, is kind of the message of the Bible. But it, it's this other a Greek word. It's this Greek word, rhema, which refers to a specific word, a specific point of the Bible at a specific time. When you're discouraged and someone sends you a text and says, hey, I was thinking about you today, and just writes a passage uh, maybe a scripture verse there. You know, someone sends you something and it's like, man, that was, that was the perfect thing that I needed to hear at that moment. That's what we're talking about. That's the right word at the right time. That's rhema. That, that's, and, and so um, if, if, you're, if you came in this morning and you're saying, man, I'm discouraged and by the end you leave and it's like, man, I don't know how it worked. The Pastor Bob talked about the very thing that I'm dealing with right now at this moment. That's the rhema word. It's not a sword, uh, this sword that's kind of swung around wildly. It's precision. It's like a scalpel. And um, that's what God's word does, right? It just, it, it's, it's the right word at the right time that stops us in our tracks and gives us a clarity that we couldn't get anywhere else. 
uh, when, when my wife and I were starting Calvary, if you can believe this, next month is going to be 20 years that we started Calvary. Can you believe that? I know, it's crazy. It's, it's, um, what's weird is I'm only 25, and so I don't even know how that math works. But anyway, uh, but we were starting Calvary, uh, and I was a pastor, an associate pastor at the Calvary Chapel in Fort Lauderdale and, um, for several years. And so, and so I had announced that I was going to leave and start the church, and, and, and I... Um, which sounds all very exciting. Hey, we're going to go do this thing. It's going to be awesome. And, and then I, 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 it just, I don't know what happened. This is about a week before we started. I, the reality of what we were doing, I mean, we felt called, we, you know, God confirmed it so often that we were called to go. And, and then we're like, all right, we're going to do this. And then, um, I don't know, I, kind of the reality, I, I got so scared to the point where I'm sitting in my office and I'm like, I'm going to go up. I'm going to go talk to my pastor, and I'm going to be like, hey, you know that thing I was saying about going? Psych. I'm going to stay. You know, which I'm, I, you know, anyway. And so as I'm thinking about this, like what am I, you know, am I going to go up there and call? So I go up there, and, uh, or not go up there. I'm sitting in my office, and I get a call from a friend of mine who's a pastor down in uh, South Miami, and he says, hey, um, what's your fax number? Now, you got to understand, this was... 19, uh, this was, well, it was 2000. So I had a fax machine and I had a beeper. So just to kind of frame things. And so anyway, um, so he says, what's your fax number? So I just give him my fax number. And, and he's like, I, I want to send you something. Um, and so I'm like, he's like, oh, so I give him the number. He's like, go away by fax. So I, I get up and I don't know if you've any of, I know some of you have never sent a fax. You've never seen a fax machine, but Believe me, such a thing existed. Um, so I go over to the fax machine, and then I, and I hear the thing come in, like the phone number comes in. You know, that, that, that delightful noise. And so anyway, the fax comes through. And this guy had sent me, he had printed out um, this passage. And he, had just, and he just wrote, um, I was praying this morning, and uh, God put you in my mind. And I was praying for you, and this verse came to mind. And I don't know if this is going to help with what you're dealing with today. And um, so, remember, I'm freaking out. Like, I don't, is any, this, anything going to happen? I mean, am I going to, like, fail if I come here? So here's the passage. It says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack you, uh, attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. And... I'm telling you, it was like um, all the fear and anxiety just melted away in that moment. And, and see, that passage was no longer just this kind of random verse about Paul uh, doing, you know, on one of his missionary journeys. That was the word for me. It was the right word at the right time that spoke faith into my life and gave me clarity. Now, you say, well, that sounds good. So, you know, and, and here's the challenge that we have is a lot of times we're like, so then anytime a Bible verse shows up, that's, that's the right word. Like, and, and here's the thing we got to be careful of is that there are going to be moments where people try to manipulate Christians by using the Bible. And sometimes Christians uh, will try to manipulate other Christians by weaponizing the Bible against uh, some other person. And I've seen this happen. And, and let me kind of paint the scenario if I can, where someone becomes a Christian and then their parents aren't Christians. And so then their parents want 
their, their, their adult children to do something, and then when the parent, when the, 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 the person who's now become Christian is like, no, I don't want to do that, they will now start, they're not Christians, but they will start quoting every Bible verse that they somewhat heard throughout the course of their life. Like, oh, you're not going to do that? I thought you were a Christian. Doesn't the Bible say to honor your father and your mother? And uh, I, I know none of you have ever experienced that, especially if your parents are Cuban. Um, and so, now, how does that work? And let me, let me explain that for a minute. Um, and how, how does it work when so, someone asks you to do something and you say, you know, I don't feel like I'm supposed to do that. And then they just kind of, they start trying to use a, a scripture to try to manipulate you to do something. Um, and, and I mean, how do you respond to that? I'm like, man, they quoted the Bible. That must be, that must be the right thing, right? Um, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, Satan used the Bible to try to manipulate him. And Jesus responded with scripture. And, I, and I, I'll give you an example. This is in Luke chapter four. It says, then he, Satan, brought Jesus to Jerusalem and set him at the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And if you pause there, uh, the, one of the things that you have to note is that Satan quotes two verses, half verses, out of context. Jesus responds with one verse that says, look, if you read this in its context, to actually do the thing that you're telling me to do would violate this principle of scripture. And, and so, now here's, here's the point, is that um, honoring your parents uh, never involves disobeying God. Right, and so now let me just, so if, if it happens like this, like, um, you know, a parent says to their, their adult children that have become Christians, like, hey, I, I wanna buy this car, but you know, my credit's all messed up, so I need you to sign, a co-sign for me so that I can get this car. And they're like, yeah, you know, there's like a bunch of Bible verses about that, about not doing that, right? And uh, they're like, I can't believe that you say you're a Christian. I thought you were supposed to be loving. I thought you're supposed to honor your parents. I mean, I just, I can't believe that. And so now you find yourself like, what in the world, like what kind of a pickle have I found myself in? Now, here, there, there's a couple of things that are important to understand. If someone needs to co-sign, if you need to co-sign for someone else because they can't afford the car, even when you sign, they're still not gonna be able to afford the car. That's why there's all these passages in Proverbs about not becoming a surety or a guarantee for somebody else. So you wanna stay away from that. And the other thing that's, that's important to note is that um, there is never a reference in the Bible where someone who is a parent demands honor from their kids. You know why that is? Because honoring your parents is supposed to be a blessing. So if you wanna deal with that, here's how I have dealt with this in the past, is when someone, because I've had people, I've had well, people, parents, say that to me, and you know, you gotta, so I, and my response would be, that's half the verse, can you quote the whole verse? And uh, which, like, what, what? No, that's all it says. No, it's actually not. It's like, it's a pretty long verse. Can you quote the whole verse? If you can't, then you don't really know what the verse means. And once again, they can't because it's probably manipulation. The second thing is, is that, and this is important, especially for those of us that are parents, um, honor is not, never something that's demanded as parents. Honor is something that you receive by living honorably, 
When you are an honorable parent, your children will, will, will honor you. You know why? Because the command is about the kids. The, the command to honor your parents is all about the kids that you might be blessed. God says that you might be blessed in the land that I'm giving you. So the idea of honoring your parents is, is a blessing for the kids. Now, how, this is an important thing. In, in, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes this. He, he says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That term rightly divides, here's what it means, to cut straight. When someone starts cutting crooked, they're kind of trying to twist or manipulate the Bible to say what they want it to say. Now, I, I had this happen to me. This is before we started Calvary. Um, I used to run a college. Some of you know that, some of you don't. But I used to run a college, and one of the students at the college comes up to me, and she says, um, Pastor Bob, would you, affiliate, uh, would you officiate my wedding? And I said, wow, you're getting married. Congratulations. That's awesome. Uh, and I said, have you gone through our, our premarital counseling? She's like, no, no, we don't have time for that because we want to get married quickly. And I said, well, listen, why not wait a month? I said, it's only like four weeks to do premarital. I said, why don't you wait a month, invest in your relationship, and uh, it's going to be even better. And I said, and I'd be happy to do it. And she's like, no, no, no. Um, we know this is of God. We started dating eight weeks ago and we know God has put us together. And then plus the Bible says, and so now she's going to proof text me. And here's, here's her proof text for it is better to marry than to burn with lust. And now let me just tell you in 1998, when I had this conversation, I was not the refined, sophisticated pastor that stands before you today. I was a little more rough around the edges, all right? And so, and I spent all day, every day, dealing with college students. Um, and so, and I, so she's like, so anyway, this is of God. We got together eight weeks ago. God put us together, and it's better to marry than to burn with lust. And, and I wouldn't have said it this way today. But I'm going to tell you, E! True Hollywood story, what I said back then. I said, so you're rushing to get married because you're horny. And, uh, and so, like I said, probably wouldn't have said it that way today. But, and she's like, well, it's not that. I mean, we like love each other and stuff. And, 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 and I said, well, then, then here's, here's what the Bible also says. And you put it up there. Love is patient. And, and now, now here's, here's the point. The rhema word, the right word at the right time isn't manipulative. The right word at the right time brings clarity, confidence, blessing, sometimes warning to the person who needs it, but it's never weaponized. It's lo it lovingly empowers, it gently guides, but when we weaponize it, here's what we do. We take the sword and we start cutting off ears of the people who are supposed to listen and it takes really a work of God to heal that relationship going forward. That's one. The sword of the spirit is the right word at the right time. Here's the second thing. The sword of the spirit is spiritual wisdom for difficult decisions. It's spiritual wisdom for difficult decisions. Here's one of the things that I've learned. You know this to be the case too. Have you noticed that most decisions uh, are pretty easy to make if you aren't emotionally attached to them? I mean like, it's pretty cut and dry what people need to do. And so sometimes, that sometimes happens, and, and we'll get, you know, kind of um, 
you know, we'll get emotionally attached and then the truth gets clouded. But that's not because the truth has changed. It's our ability to see and accept the truth becomes more challenging. Now, let me explain it this way. Um, The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter four says this. He says, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I want you to look at that word, that verse. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Same word, makaria, that same dagger, and it can divide between soul and spirit. Now, what does that mean? Now, just like how God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are created in God's image, and you are a lesser trinity. Not that you are God, you're not, and if you are unaware, talk to your wife about it. She'll fill you in, right? Now, here's, here's how this works. You are a trinity of body, soul, and spirit. Now, your body is your body. Your soul is your personality. That's made up of your background, your experience, your intellect, all of that. And your spirit is your innermost person. This is the part of you that connects with God, the the true you. And and just in case you're like, are you sure that's right? Well, here's how Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify means make you more like Jesus completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says this, that the word of God is so sharp that it can actually divide between soul and spirit. It can divide between the emotions that you have on a matter and the spiritual reality about the matter. This is why emotional decisions are so hard to make because we're struggling with whether the decision we want to make is a really spiritual decision or it's just an emotional decision that we're talking ourselves into. And and, and we know the difference. This is why you know exactly what to do with other people's kids. You know, I mean, it's so simple. Like getting other people's kids in line. No, you got to do this and tell, you know, it's so simple. And you don't even have kids yet. And you know exactly what to do to get kids in line and deal with them. And then you know what happens? And then you have kids. And then something changes. And then you kind of like emotions get involved and you can't, can't figure out what to do and how do I deal with this and they want this, but that's not good. And how do I tell them what they want, but they said no. And how do I figure that out? And I don't want them to dislike me. And um, which by the way is like 50% of parenting uh, is your kids disliking you. And, uh, and now, and so here's, here's what happens. Somehow emotions got involved. When we were not emotionally attached to it, we knew exactly what to do. Now emotions get involved and we can't figure out what to do. And why did it get so complicated? Because the soul, your personality, your emotions, your intellect, it all got involved. That's why when you talk about like somebody, you know, when you and your friends are talking about whichever friend is not there. um, And and you're like, you know what that guy's deal is? What he's got to do is this. And, And it's like, it's so easy to figure out other people's issues. And, uh, you know, and you know how long it took me to deal with my issues? I mean, once I deal with them, I'll let you know. But, um, I mean, but the real I- issue is, is that 
Our issues are all wrapped up in emotions and justifications and yeah, but I don't understand. And, and so, no, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. It's kind of a silly one, but um, so a couple of months ago, uh, I made dinner for our family and then I sat down to eat and, my, and, and, and I had made like a different thing for everybody. And because uh, I was like, what are you in the mood to eat? And so uh, anyway, that, that's a bad strategy. Uh, but, but I did that. And so then I sit down and my wife says, Bob, what are you eating? And I realized that I had made dinner for everyone except me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just not eating. I'm, I'm, I'm so tired from making, I don't even care. And so I just sat there and watched everyone else eat. And then, I know it's sad, it's sad. But like, if you look at me, you're probably like, he could stand to skip a meal. And, uh, but so I clean up after dinner and then I sit down and I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm stressed out about a whole bunch of things. And, um, you know, we got this property next door we're trying to build on. And that's probably taken five years off my life. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm stressed out about a whole bunch of things. So everybody leaves. I sit down. I go into our pantry and I grab an Oreo cookie and I eat it. And okay, fine. I ate 12. Um, Fine, they were gold, golden double stuffed Oreos. Leave me alone, stop pressing me on it. Anyway, so, and they were amazing. They really were because golden double stuffed Oreos are a little taste of heaven. The only thing that would make uh, golden double stuffed Oreos better is if they were bigger. Uh, that's it, you know, like the people that came out with like mega stuff, that was like the triple. And then they came out with this thing called the most stuff. I have this idea that I've been trying to pitch to Oreo. Anyway, I've been, my, my letters to the president have all gone back without responses. But I have this thing. It's called you stuff. And basically, you get just a container of the middle with a bunch of the crackers. And you make your own stuff. Which basically, for those of us that are into Oreos, we'd basically get three Oreos out of it. Uh, because, you know, we'd, the Oreos would be this big. Anyway, so. But you know what happens after you eat 12 Oreos? Um, uh, there, there's this moment that, well, there's, this, uh, there's two emotions that happen. The first thing that happens is, um, if, if you're like me, you look at the back of the, well, I don't know why I do this, but I look at the back of the box to see what the nutritional information, it, it should just say one word, nutritional information, none. There's no nutritional value here. But then it says serving size, two. Like what kind of a madman says, you know what people should have? Probably like two Oreos. Like, no. A, 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 a serving of Oreo is one sleeve of the containers, right? So really, a box of Oreos has three, it's three servings. Anyway, I'm not even going to get into that. But so what happens is there's this other thing that happens after you eat a, whole, a sleeve of Oreos, and that is uh, this terrible stomach ache ensues um, because, uh, you know, I don't try not to eat Oreos that much, and I just felt horrible. And besides that, um, I had been trying to eat better, so I felt so guilty, and I knew it was going to take me a week to undo the Oreo damage that was being done. So I go and tell my wife, because I, I can't keep any secrets, and so I tell her, and I'm like, hey, I got to confess. Um, she's like, what happened? And I'm like, I, I, I had an Oreo. She's like, you ate an Oreo? I'm like, fine, I ate 12. She's like, you had 12 Oreos? I'm like, fine, I had 12 double stuff Oreos. Leave me alone, woman. And uh, so, um, so my wife... I, so I tell her the story. She's like, listen, it's okay. And then she goes into the pantry. She's like, I want to help you. I said, okay. And she goes into the pantry and she takes the entire, she takes a package of Oreos and throws them in the garbage. I don't, I was so outraged. And I'm like, what? How, how dare you? 
And I'm like, you are wasting money. I'm like, there are kids in this world that don't even have access to Oreos. We could have mailed some to some of those kids. And wherever they are, you know, we could have just post, you know, the postal, you got the post office, send it to the Oreo-less children. And, and, and now here's, here's the thing is that my wife has had this ability to make the right decision because she was not caught up in the emotion of it. And my wife did what the word of God can do in your life. Remove the emotions from a situation and allow you to make the right decision spiritual decision. And my friends, this is why we need to invite God into our decisions before we make them because it will save you from tons of questionable choices that we end up regretting later. Okay, last one and then we're done. The sword of the spirit is the right word at the right time. It's, it's spiritual direction when we need it. The other thing is, is that the, the sword of the spirit fills me with faith. Um, I, I've, I've had people tell me over the years, both people who are Christians and not, uh, oh, if God would show me a miracle, I'd believe. And the problem with that thinking is that as you read the Bible, you will find that miracles never produce faith. In fact, what you'll find is the opposite is true. Faith produces miracles, but miracles don't produce Faith, and in fact, many times, I, I believe we don't experience miracles because we've never put ourselves in a place where we've needed one. But it begs the question, what fuels our faith? The good thing is we don't have to wonder. The Apostle Paul tells us what the answer to that question is. He says it in Romans 10. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When we hear the right word at the right time, it prompts us to a greater faith a greater trust in greater heights in our walk with God. Because everything, and this is just, this is a principle that is true in any area of your life. Everything that you feed in your life grows. Everything you feed in your life grows. And every study, this whole season that we've been in and coronavirus and quarantine and lockdowns and all that, every study that has been done shows that, that as a society, we are more angry, we are more depressed. We are more anxious than ever before. And does that surprise anyone? Um, people are watching the news at a higher rate than ever before. Listen, the, the stats just came out a couple of weeks ago. Nine of the top 10 highest rated shows on television are all news programs. And then, uh, you know, and then we're like, why is everybody so angry? Why is everybody so anxious? It's like, you know, why watch a rerun of Friends when I can, you know, set myself up with a few hours of fake news and get angry and scared and get my anxiety kicked into overdrive? This is why, like, people, are, I've been having this conversation with so many people, like, why is everything political now? It's because that's all we're feeding ourselves. And that's why we're looking at it all through this lens. And so we're, we're, we're living in a society that views it all through that lens because that's all that we're feeding ourselves because everything that we feed grows. This doesn't happen by accident. It happens when we make a choice. And we have a choice now that whatever we want to feed, that whatever we want to grow, feed that. You want your marriage to grow? Let me just give you a little tip. Sign up for the marriage retreat that we're doing. 
And you know what's going to happen? You're going to have a weekend where you're going to be able to just invest in your marriage and it's going to transform your marriage. You want to be closer to your kids? Let me give you a, 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 little, a little tip. Um, you know, turn off the news and pull out a board game. Talk about, well, what, are they, what do they want to talk about? And just start asking questions. Go play mini golf and uh, just go laugh together. And you're going to create these memories that um, you're, you're, you're never going to forget. Just talk about what they're dealing with. Listen, and if you want your faith to grow, then let it feed on the rhema word, the right word at the right time, words that encourage you to keep pressing on and doing what God has called you to do. And when you do, you will have a faith that will not fail you when you need it most. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that promise, for that reality that you want to lead and direct us. And so God, I pray, may we hear your word, do what it says, feed that spiritual part of us and that it might transform every other part of us and how we live. And we prayed in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.